From the New Orleans Lymphomaniac Cancer Fund, I'm Chad Landry. This is the Living Lympho Podcast. Today, the story behind one local New Orleanian's courageous battle against a very aggressive form of breast cancer, and how now that she is healthy and back at work, she is using her personal experience with cancer to guide her legislative priorities. Hashtag fight like Julie. It's Friday, September 28th. Mrs. Julie Skinner-Stokes, welcome to the podcast. Mm, Thank you. Before we get started, you need to tell me, where do you get your energy from? Wife, mother of two, CPA, small business owner, Louisiana state rep, budget policy expert, and on top of all that, you're currently running for a statewide office, the Louisiana Secretary of State. What what are you eating and drinking? Where do you get your energy from? (laughs) Uh, I wish I could say at this very moment that it was all great choices, but uh, as you can see, I'm drinking a cup of coffee at the (laughs) moment. (laughs) But you know, I I really, I'm, I'm invigorated by talking to people. I used to always think I was never in the moment, but now I realize it's like when I'm engaged with somebody, and whether that's in a room of a bunch of people or, you know, just like right now, that gives me energy. When I get by myself and think about all we have to do, sometimes that's a zapper. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. Well, Julie, you and most of our podcast listeners are well aware of the fact that one in eight U.S. women will develop invasive breast cancer over the course of her lifetime. And that for women in the U.S., breast cancer death rates are higher than those for any other cancer besides lung cancer. Julie, can you take us back to last year and tell us a little bit about your personal experience with breast cancer, starting with your specific type of breast cancer and what you had going on in your life at the time of your diagnosis? Yeah, I I was actually in legislative session, so we were in Baton Rouge and you know, I've got a little apartment up there for when you're in session, and I, I felt it. Like, I just happened to feel it in the shower. I wasn't trying or anything, and uh, because we just had no history of that in my family to speak of. Wow. Uh, it was almost the one health problem that I never thought would get me. Um, so when I felt it, I thought, well, that's just a cyst, and I, I didn't do anything about it because, of course, I was too, and I'm using quotations, busy, at the time to, to take care of it. And I had just had a clean mammogram in, in September, and this was April. So I wasn't that concerned. Um, How long did you wait? Before eight you, weeks. Eight weeks. Eight weeks. Um, once the session was over and I was I was actually getting ready to really start on a treasurer, well, the campaign for treasurer, and I sat down with staff in my apartment up there, and I found a note for uh, one of my doctors, and I said, call this doctor and make an appointment because I felt a lump. And they looked at each other like, oh, my gosh, what? <laughs> and I said, don't worry, it won't be anything. And um, luckily for me, they made the appointment and told them that we couldn't wait forever. And I got in and and started getting bad news right away. <laughs> so you were too busy running for state treasurer. You had your staff make the appointment for your, yeah. with your oncologist. Well, and I put it off for two weeks because I didn't have time to go to the doctor while we were in session. <laughs> you know? Of course. And, and um, yeah, it's just uh, when I think back to it, I think I spent so much time in my life being kind of paranoid about everything that, that seemed weird with my health. And just for those la- for the last five years or so, I had kind of stopped being obsessive about everything and just assuming everything was fine, and then boom, you know. That's when it hits you. Right. And, you know, you mentioned breast cancer, but um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, you had a pretty aggressive form of breast cancer, right? Yeah, and so that's when the, the news just kept getting worse. So I'd gone to the doctor, 
she said, you need to go have a, a, a mammogram. I went and had that. They said, huh, don't like it too much. <laughs> Why don't you have an ultrasound? And you go have the ultrasound. She says, I don't like it too much at all. <laughs> when I saw it on the screen, I thought, mm, that looks a little too irregular. It's not a cyst. Um, but I just persisted in believing that it was going to be okay. And every time I'd start to worry about it, I would do this mental exercise of like putting it in a box, wrapping it up with newspaper and shoving it against a wall. Wow. I and mean, literally I did that over and over. And, um, you know, just the, after they did the biopsy, like it's definitely cancer. It's like, okay, well, it's going to be the easiest kind, wrap the box back up, throw it to the wall. And, um, then it was like July 3rd. Uh, I think it was a Monday, and I was told that um, this isn't good. Um, you remember where you were? When actually, you, when first... actually, I got the first phone call. It was on a Friday night. It was a friend of mine, so I, I could see who it was calling. Ralph Corsetti at Oshner. We've known each other for a while. He was your oncologist? Yeah, um, oncology surgeon, yeah. yeah. And uh, when I saw his name, I left Saki Cafe where <laughs> I was sitting with my kids, and my husband was about to meet us there, and I went and sat outside um, to talk, and the news was devastating. I mean, it was horrible. <laughs> it was like, are See? you kidding me? I mean, I went from, you know, thinking the absolute best, this is going to be easy, whatever, to finding out that it was triple negative breast cancer, stage 2B, and um, that meant, in essence... When you did the math, because they would tell me that you had a 33% chance roughly of the chemo curing it, a 33% chance of the more or less radiation killing it, um, and that, that left 33%. And um, at that point, I knew that it was nothing to mess with, and I got out of the treasurer's race, which was just so difficult. I was already traveling all over the state, so excited about all the possibilities. I felt so positive Ugh. I was called to what I was doing. And you'd already raised a bunch of money, too, yeah, right? Yeah, and it just didn't make any sense. Um, and eventually, you know, by the day after, I guess by the day after July 4th, because you know, it was like right up in there, we had the, the holiday and everything. It was the most depressing July 4th on record. <laughs> and then, you know, we had to send out a press release right after that and just tell the world that it's not happening. And... Uh, there were actually my friend, uh, state representative, well, now he's on the Kenner Council, Tom Wilmot, had a friend who got diagnosed with the same thing on the same week. And my friend in Bugaloosa, oh, Bogaloosa, <laughs> sorry, Melinda, um, Melinda White had a friend that got diagnosed with the same thing at the same, you know, I think hers was even the same day. Wow. And uh, Melinda's friend's not with, she's no longer with us. The same thing you were diagnosed with, she so passed there away. Were, yes, there were That's three terrible. of us diagnosed on that day, and um, exactly two-thirds of us have remained. So there's just no doubt that I was playing with a big enemy. So you're in the prime of your life in your mid-40s, running for a big statewide race. Yeah. You're out having dinner with your family, and you get a call from the doctor. How did your family take it? Oh my gosh! You have two, we were two in, sons. I was a, a son and a daughter. A son and a daughter. Um, they were fifteen and thirteen. Now they're sixteen and okay. fourteen. Um, I, I left them in there. I was outside, sitting in front of the. There's a um, Starbucks right there, and talking to the doctor. And some friends of ours came up, and they started. Well, my husband got there while I was sitting there, and he's reading my notes and. We know these are not good notes. And then some friends of ours come out, because, of course, we know everybody all around there because it's right there in right, the neighborhood. Right, neighborhood. And um, some dear friends come up, and they're asking me, oh, how are you doing? And I, I just looked at them, and I put my hand up, and 
that's a very uncomfortable thing for me to tell somebody to go away kind of right but it was like i yeah it was really bad <laughs> i went back inside and we told the kids it's like it's not good but we're gonna be fine let's just get through this meal and we're gonna go home and talk about it and we sat there in pretty tense silence while we dealt with that but i knew if i started to talk about it, i was going to cry and i didn't want to start crying in sake just you know i needed to get home and um yeah i know ultimately you had to drop out due to health but you know when i think back you know somebody with your background as a cpa this must have been your dream job to be treasurer and kind of look over the state's finances um what what drove you to kind of be interested in, in being state treasurer and how difficult was it for you to drop out you know, I really did see it as, as a perfect role for me. Um, I, I didn't have a choice but to drop out. And look, I tried to maneuver <laughs> my brain to do every possible thing to not give that up. Because at that point, not only do you have cancer, but you've given up your dream. And um, that was really hard. And, and look, I'm going to be honest, the only thing that got me too happy, but it happened quick, was God. Because, you know, I've had times in my life where I've experienced real big loss without him and I've had time this time now where I experience it with him and um, night and day it's, it's funny you say that because we've talked to a lot of people that know you well and anytime we bring up your name they always talk about your strong faith so I was kind of curious I'm sure our listeners are curious um, is that something that started with um, you having cancer or is it something that you've always had strong faith or maybe it got stronger while you had cancer um, you know, I, um, I I was actually raised, I mean, we, I was raised Protestant, um, but not particularly very much raised churched. I, I kind of say I was raised unchurched um, pretty much. And then when my husband Larry and I got married, we got married in the Episcopal Church because they were okay. very welcoming to us. And and then um, along the line, we just felt like we needed more, and there was just more. We needed more wisdom. <laughs> we knew it. And um, we started going to a church out in Kenner. It's a vineyard church. And um, honestly, it changed my life. Um, after Katrina, that was before Katrina, but after Katrina, I took a long look at my life, my flooded house, the only house on the street that flooded. The business was flooded. I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Wow. I had been thinking about running for Kenner City Council and living under a lot of stress and worried about it. And I literally took a deep dive and just got out for a couple of few years. Um, got out, sold my little practice, you know, of CPA stuff and um, stopped being on the chamber board, stopped being on wow. everything and went into a deep dive. And that deep dive, um, it was always a Bible study at my house. There was always, I was always writing and reading and I'd retreat just to. You took that time to focus yes. on your faith. And um, it, it, the thing about that, that was just so remarkable is it really changed how I looked at the world. And because of that time, I always had carried this like, uh, desire to to help other people to come to peace and try to find their purpose in life and it wasn't until I got the cancer um, that I found out that I could actually walk the walk that I preached right because um, it was very difficult um, but I, you know I in the middle of the whole cancer thing and it, one of the worst parts of it I got the UNO Distinguished Alumni Award which was just this thing that you know I just always saw somebody get it, and it was like, I don't know how you ever get to be that amazing to get that, uh, you know? 
So to get that honor. was such a big deal. Yeah. And um, in the midst of that, you know, I, I got an opportunity to to write a speech and to realize just how I was happy. I joked at that event about, yeah, other than having cancer and giving up my dream, my life is fabulous. Yeah. But the crazy. But you really were. I really meant it. And. You think because rather than having all these other responsibilities, your main focus, you were so focused on getting better and, and, and just focus leads to happiness. Well, and just accepting that I felt strongly that where one door would close, another one would open. And I knew that between that and the fact that everything was going to be okay, no matter what, which was actually something I learned at the Episcopal church that we went to for a while everything's going to be okay no matter what and you you're just going to get through it and you're going to deal with it and you've got a choice to make here you can have cancer and be miserable and angry about it or you can have cancer and decide to choose joy every day and there are days in there that i'll be honest i mean the chemos were off there were times that it was very difficult to actually choose joy but i always knew in my heart that if i waited through it it would get better right i tell you um considering how partisan politics can be, I was shocked and impressed with the fact that your breast cancer diagnosis started a movement on social media labeled fight, hashtag fight like Julie. Republicans, Democrats, independents, it didn't matter. Pretty much the entire state legislature came out wearing pink in your honor, posting fight like Julie hashtag. Uh, that's gotta make you feel good. It was amazing, and it happened, you know, we, I was already going out to uh, Utah for a, the, the closing retreat of this women in government thing that I had been invited to be part of, and uh, I was on my way either out or back when all that Fight Like Julie stuff starts hitting <laughs> my computer, and... Um, you know, I was online and trending all over the country, right? I like actually yeah. trended for like three or six <laughs> hours. I know it was yeah. like, oh my word! I mean, it was, it really, it. Oh, they did that on the day of qualifying, so it was the sixth. Yeah. And um, I was coming back from Utah, and when I saw that, it was, it just, um, it, it changed how I looked at things and how much love I felt, and I felt really covered in prayer and good wishes that's a big deal i think it's a testament of all the good work and relationships you've made in the legislature it's not easy to be in the legislature for a couple of years you know as a woman and a republican and and all these people come out and support you so that's unbelievable yeah it really was and it was a bipartisan thing and um yeah it, it it really got me through that day and put a lot of smile on my face switching gears a little bit you were elected louisiana state rep in kenner back in 13 what drove you to run for office? I mean, you talked about after Katrina, kind of checking out and focusing on your faith for a couple of years. But what what made you kind of say, I want to get back into it um, and you know run for office? Yeah, um, you know, it was very organic. I, I, just as a young CPA, they want you to get involved in the community. So I started out with the Young Leadership Council in New Orleans. And then um, I wanted to have a little bit more um, presence and understand my own parish a little bit more. So I moved over to Jefferson Chamber. We started a young leadership group there. I was the second president of that, which then kind of puts you on the board. And then once you're on the board, they want you to be in another committee. So then I was in the (laughs) governmental committee. And when you're on the governmental committee of the chamber, you're invited to do transition teams and economic development teams and just all of this expanded policy work and uh, I realized that I just 
cared so deeply about trying to bring better jobs to our area, try to, to make us as competitive and strategic with our our policy as we possibly could to, to try to maximize our potential. And, um, you know, in the midst of all of it, uh, all of a sudden, my predecessor, Tony Legee, resigned. And I, I got phone calls right away time. from right. a couple of friends. And um, and I, I never knew if I'd really have the courage to do it. Because if you remember when I said at one time I was thinking about running for Kendrick City Council, Council. But I was scared to death. I, I didn't know that I could take such a big risk. Um, because if you fail, it's such a public failure. <laughs> I mean, you know, and uh, that that you've got to learn how to be able to handle that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, in Baton Rouge, in the state legislature, you're considered by peers as one of the most knowledgeable uh, legislators as it relates to the Louisiana state budget and Louisiana fiscal policy. How did that happen? I mean, obviously you're a CPA, but when you finally got elected, you just went up to Baton Rouge and sunk your teeth in, or had- yeah, you know when I when I got there, the very first day that I spent in the legislature um, was Governor Jindal rolling out the proposed um, massive tax reform plan in 2013. So that was just my first introduction to the legislature, and it had kind of always been the thing that interested me the most, being a CPA. Right, um, was that we structure our our system competitively so that businesses want to be here. If businesses want to be here, then we want to be here having jobs and uh, a higher quality of life. Um, I really went through a few years where I got so obsessed with understanding it all. I mean, I would go to sleep thinking about, you know, what would happen if I compared like, you know, 2005 and inflation adjust that forward mm-hmm. and where did it go wrong? You know, and I would compare every year. I'd, then, the, then the next day I'd think, well, Medicaid's so out of whack. <laughs> Maybe I should try to find out how many enrollees they had and how many enrollees they have now and, you know, inflation adjust that. And, you know what what accounts for this big increase so i just um i did i got i got entirely obsessed <laughs> with understanding and i'd do analysis like what's the gdp growth per state and then how do they structure their corporate tax wow. how do they structure their individual tax trying to figure out what would be the best um and then i, I think it was 2012 or no i'm sorry 2014 or something like that when north carolina did a, a huge uh, big reform in in taxation, and it's it 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 sparked so much activity in their economy that they've been cutting taxes ever since. And I, you know, I got so excited about trying to bring a model like that, but it's just proven to be a very very difficult thing, you know, in our state house and and the Senate too. Just difficult, you know. It's really yeah. difficult. You would think that it would be so simple to bring meaningful competitive strategic reform but there's a lot more impediments than you you could than i ever imagined yeah i was going to ask you i mean it's just been in the news so much over the past 12 months all these different special sessions to balance the budget you know i realize you're a state rep but but just kind of thinking big picture are there a couple of things what what would you do to to what would be an easy plan to balance the budget kind of high level well you know um you know, I looked at a lot of the reform from a revenue neutral perspective. 
um, because reform doesn't have to be linked with increasing revenue or decreasing it. Um, but so I'll highlight both of those things. But first, the reform, we had a real opportunity to get rid of our um, bracketed income tax. Okay. And uh, our top rate of 6% is fairly high, really, especially when you compare it to what Louisianians are actually paying. Um, we have the federal income tax deduction. If you take the federal income tax deduction, which it, we're one of three states that do that, it's really just not considered smart policy to link yourself to another system. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, because of the sales, that I mean, the savings that everybody will have in the federal tax reform, mm-hmm. it will cause everybody's Louisiana tax to go up. <laughs> if we would have done the flat tax, that wouldn't have happened. Okay. Louisiana wouldn't be determined on, on the federal system. So we tried to get rid of the federal deductibility and also the way we do our itemized deductions here. You're actually deducting Louisiana income tax paid from Louisiana income tax calculation, which is, that doesn't really, <laughs> thank you for laughing. Some people don't get it, but it doesn't make any sense. Um, so if you took those two things out and you applied a flat rate above on all income above twelve five for an individual and twenty five thousand married filing joint, it was going to be three point six eight. We would have been rock stars of the United States. So that would have moved us up in the rankings. Oh, up. hugely! I mean, that would have moved us from I forget what our individual you know what the individual right. tax one, but I mean, it would have moved us up twenty something places. And we're currently where? Um, well, and when I'm, I know that we we started out. Of, we were 42nd ranked. Okay. Um, in terms of you know our business tax environment, which encompasses all the different kinds of taxation. Right. And we could have moved to, to 20 or so, um, but instead we now moved to 46th. Wow. I mean, we just keep making bad decisions because, as far as I can see, the problem is. If you can't agree on the that the problem exists, then you can't, you can't work on it. smart solutions. Right. I mean, the real argument there should have been between a progressive tax and a flat tax. Right. Um, but you couldn't have it because we were too busy arguing that there was a deficit. And, right. You right. know. I gotcha. Um, you know, as a cancer survivor, I guess one of the things that I I was most impressed with in, in kind of doing research on you and your career in the state legislature was – the success you had with passing recently a bill as it relates to 3D mammograms. Yeah. So um, can you tell us a little bit about, for those people out out there that aren't uh, in the healthcare industry, what is a 3D mammogram? Why is it better than what we've had before? And talk a little bit about the bill that you authored and had passed uh, and the effect that it's had on on, uh, people in our state. So another word for 3D mammography is tomosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Just in case you hear that word, um, you know, that, that means the same thing. And right now, not all the providers have the machines. And we could not mandate that all the providers get the machines, but we did mandate that insurance has to pay for a 3D mammography or tomosynthesis. And it, it just, it works much better, especially in cases of high high-density breast tissue. Um, my clean mammogram in September, um, immediately preceding my cancer, uh, probably would not have shown up clean on a, on tomosynthesis. Wow. Um, I might have been able to run for treasurer. I might have caught it early enough that we could have gotten it out of there. And, you know, I don't know. But I can tell you that the one thing, if, if, I, if I leave 
if I leave the listeners with nothing else, don't accept anything other than 3D. Your provider won't necessarily have it. Your insurance will pay for it. You have to go to a provider, a radiologist that has it. But the fact that your insurance will pay for it, that's a ref- that's because of the bill that you had passed, right? Right. So the bill required insurance to pay for it. Um, and, you know, that that in and of itself is, you know, usually a struggle because, you know, insurance is business. But they were... Um, they were very open to it. They really never fought us on it. Um, That's great. Yeah, they really never fought us on it. The only problem we almost had is we almost didn't get out of Senate finance mm-hmm. because they weren't doing any bills that had any fiscal note at all. And it was going to have a fiscal note because the state employees are covered by the state. Right. And um, and luckily, I was able to to really talk to them about it as a committee and say, look, we can take the officer group benefits out of this and thereby not cover this for the women of our state. But you guys are going to have to be responsible yeah, right. for that, not me. Right, right. <laughs> you know. So um, pass. And it was a real, real proud and a happy moment uh, for all of us, I think, when that did pass. And women don't have to be we actually had a, bi- a bipartisan effort that yeah. got that passed right that's right so it's, that's it's right. doable <laughs> i had another one too um okay. when you have breast cancer and you have double mastectomy with reconstruction um you, you no longer get scans so they no longer do PET scans or whatever. You just go visit with the doctor. They kind of feel around the lymph nodes or whatever and send you on your way. And I've talked to several people that said that they had to pay for their own PET scans every year. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I mean, that's great if you can pay for your own PET scans. Expensive. But what about the people that don't have $1,800? Right. And so we passed a bill and, uh, again credit to the insurance companies for not you know beating that bill up mm-hmm. um, but it said that if your doctor would write the request for a pet scan that it would be honored and insurance would pay for it and uh, I can tell you that there are doctors that don't want to write it and uh, the thought behind it which is just not it's just not it's not the answer I was going to accept is that if you have metastatic breast cancer, there's no cure for it. Mm. So it's not going to affect the treatment outcome. Mm-hmm. My personal belief is that I think it's going to be a lot easier to deal with a cancer that we find as a grain of sand in one place than if I wait so long that I've got it all over the place. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm very happy that, you know, that's not a struggle that women in that particular situation have to go through. Now, that being said... Um, we wrote the bill very tight, which means so that it wouldn't apply to a whole bunch of other things, right. so that the insurance wouldn't fight us as much. Right. Um, but I've gotten calls from other people that have had different kinds of cancer, and they're like, I can't get PET scans, and I live scared to death. And I just think, um, you know, I would really like to see... Expand a little bit. To expand a little bit, yeah. because, um, you know... What you're dealing with isn't it, it, you know, and the, if you want to look at it, that it's just like, oh, mentally scary and just get over that. I mean, right. whatever. I'm sorry. Right. But there's no way you're ever going to convince me that it's not harder to cure 50 pebbles than it would be one grain of sand. I totally agree with you. Totally agree with it. So last year, um, you know, like we said, you were, you were uh, running for state treasurer. You were diagnosed with cancer. You beat the disease. 
Then you went back to do great work in the state legislature. And now you have a new challenge, right? Because you like yeah. to take on new challenges. So, so uh, <laughs> I'm either you know. crazy or a real go-getter. <laughs> so you're running for Louisiana Secretary of State, and I believe the election's November 6th. Yes, it's so close. Yeah. I think it's like 38 days. It's terrifying. Getting close every day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why run for Louisiana Secretary of State? What do you think you can do in that office to, to benefit Louisiana? Yeah, so so when some trouble first started earlier this year and people were wondering um, and, and, and knew that there would be an election in 2019 for Secretary of State, and, you know, I started kind of tossing it around then. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more excited I got about it. Secretary of State is in charge of our election process. Um, and in that role, you're basically setting up strong internal controls, audit validations, reconciliations of the number of you know voters that, that cast absentee ballots, early ballots, and then regular ballots. There's a whole lot of accounting type things that go on there. Right. And I really don't think anybody in the race is better set up to go in, do a process audit of what we do there. Uh, at the Secretary of State's office with regard to elections, get all the organizational charts, understand how all the the duties and the personnel flow, and come up with a really strong internal control environment. There's nothing more important right now than protecting our elections. We're under threat by Russians and and I just heard Chinese. I mean, we, we, we've got to be secure. The entire democracy of this entire country depends on every Secretary of State or election official whatever they might be in every state, being able to be extremely vigilant over this particular piece of our democracy. Um, the second part of what the Secretary of State does is very focused on business. And while the first part is the biggest responsibility, right. I think the second part is the biggest opportunity. Okay. Um, I, I see, I, I, envi <laughs> I envision a dream <laughs> <laughs> in which there's one hub that the Secretary of State manages in which you can do all of your business with Louisiana and all of its parishes and entities, um, maybe even just with one number. Like instead of having a different workforce number and a different uh, Department of Revenue number and a different Jefferson Parish number, you know, maybe we could have one number. Makes sense. I, I have my, my, my joke that comes from um, my, my love of watching movies with my son, but one number to rule them all. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I would really like to see that, to just make doing business in this state not even just streamline, but inviting. Right. Because I, I would also like when you fill out, let's say you're going on to do your initial filing and you're putting yourself um, in there as an LLC and everybody forgets to go to the IRS and tell them if they want to be taxed like an individual, a partnership, an S corporation or a C corporation, remind people to do that and route them over there and then be able to route them back. Ask them if they're going to have employees, route them to Workforce Commission, ask them if they're going to have sales, route them to Department of Revenue, None route them to the None of that stuff we're doing right now. No, I mean, I think there's some rudimentary ideas around it, but I would just love to see that happen and then to have... You know, every year when you renew, um, well, it's first of all to make sure that people know that they have to renew because there's so many people at 
the notifications that we use aren't getting to people and they look themselves up and they find out they're in bad standing over $35. First of all, if you want to put a credit card number in there and let that roll for however many years, it'll just happen automatically if you want that. Cause a lot of people cry out for that. Um, but also that you'll get sufficient reminders by various methods. And then when you go and you fill out your annual, um, you know, renewal, you might be asked, what can the Secretary of State's office help you with? Are you having trouble finding workforce? You know, depending on what part of the state you're in, you might be able to go to LED's Fast Start for enhanced worker, kind of finding your workers. They help people find workers and train workers. You know, you might be hooked up with a college that, in the state that has people that do what you need done. Maybe your problem is as simple as that you have a very – cookie cutter problem with the Department of Revenue that you just need to get somebody on the phone that'll listen and we can help with that. Um, I think that there's so many opportunities to be a business advisor mm-hmm. on top of just a business register, you know? So I look at that as just the, the opportunity of the job. I think I got into the legislature in the first place because I have a deep love of economic development and bringing business to the state. Business being here and employing people in good jobs, that's that's it. I mean, how 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 we live our lives and how we're able to provide for our families, raise our kids, the quality of life we have are dependent upon having good jobs here. So in that role, I would hope to be any kind of assist they need. You know, we've got a Department of Economic Development. You need somebody to go meet with a company. You want me just to have some ideas about people I can start conversations with? Whatever it takes, I want to grow business here. That's great. Um, Julie, every podcast we do, we field questions from our listeners. We have our listeners uh, email us any questions they might have for any of our upcoming guests. So we had some folks uh, email us their questions, and we picked two. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask you uh, two of those questions. So um, one uh, listener sent me an email and said, Hello, Chad. Love your podcast. I'm a local female CPA here in New Orleans, and I've been following Julie's political career. Can you please ask Julie if she has any political role models? Yeah, you know, um, I would I would have to say right now, I and mean, just because it's so fresh on everybody's mind, but honestly, I would say one of them is John McCain. Um, I, I love the fact that he was strong and decisive, um, but he also used his God-given discernment, you know, to think through all the choices. It's so easy in this world we're in right now to just cater to a lot of the rhetoric that's out there and just trying to sell your own, you know, version of the partisan stuff that's going on. But the true answers are are so much, I mean, the truth, the truth will set you free, brother. (laughs) You know, when we concentrate on the facts of a situation and concentrate on the logic of a situation, but at the same time, you're brave enough to to tell the truth and to say something, maybe it's a little different than what everybody else is saying, but is that something that we have to be scared of or is that what a leader does? You know, I um, I think the people of my district chose me because... One of the things I said is I would listen to everybody and that I would always um, use the God-given discernment that I had to try to figure out the best decision for Louisiana. And 
Um, I think that that's more important now than ever. Be logical and follow the facts. I know. And you would think that being logical, following the facts, and just trying to move the state forward would be such a (laughs) (laughs) no-brainer. But it it does make you a little revolutionary almost. (laughs) Good. Well, here's a second question from the listener. Um, Hi, Chad. I'm a political junkie. How do we fix our state's huge bipartisan issues? Is is it a sign of the time and and something we just have to live with? Yeah. Um, it, it is kind of the times that we're in. Um, there's a lot with the way our districts are drawn that um, make everything a little bit more partisan, I think. Um, but we're... Have you ever heard, this is the post-truth era. Have you ever heard of the post-truth era? It sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah. I was watching a show, an award show for some science stuff with my son, and one of the speakers came on and started talking about post-truth. So, I mean, I started Googling it right away. <laughs> and and I think right now in, in politics, we tend to want to tell people things that will either evoke a fear, evoke anger, and try to get them all stirred up that way. And with some truthy phrases, and truthy is kind of in the post-truth, I think we need to just embrace what's actually going on. I mean, you know, the numbers that, and what's going on in our state, um, it's not like some big, deep um, issue that's like a social issue, that that people have deep beliefs, but they're, they're not, like something that you can tangibly just see on a piece of paper, like numbers. Numbers are pretty tangible. They're right there. You can see the audited numbers. That's as tangible as you can possibly get and work with them and just work through truth and try to work with the facts, the logic, uh, studying other states, trying to be as competitive as humanly possible. I think it's just a return to just the facts. Right. And um, sometimes you feel like, Politics, we try to solve very practical problems with political solutions and political rhetoric. And um, I thought about for a while just having my slogan be Julie Stokes, smart solutions, if anybody still cares. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think we just need a, a return to that, that value that just wants to see Louisiana move forward. Yeah. Well, in the course of, of doing research on you for this podcast, I came across a really great quote from you, and this is the quote I would like to use to end the podcast. Um, this is Julie Stokes, quote, I stand by the fact that I'm very conservative, but I'll never be conservative at the expense of thought. She said, if that's what people really want in politics today, people who will do 100, 100% of what the party tells you, then stop electing smart people. Yeah. It's a great quote. Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. And I mean, you hear about politicians right now, and I, I don't, it wasn't anybody in this state, but just, just like a few months ago, I saw where somebody wanted to um, set up a website and have their, their constituents tell them every vote to make. Like, you go log on and tell <laughs> right. me, and I'll vote that way every time. And, and, and I mean, that's... I can understand where his mind was, but at the same time, the depth that we can get to if we're willing to be obsessed with everything and study it a whole lot, uh, there's a lot to be said for that depth and and really allowing people to use their discernment and listening to them about why, um, you know, one option might be better than the other. 
we we've gotten to a point where we don't want to listen. Everybody's just kind of quick, quick to, I guess, anger. But and we are follow emotions versus follow logic. emotions. Yeah. And um, I'm here to say that you know we're 49th on a lot of metrics, and the status quo is not acceptable anymore. And um, it's not going to come from feeding on people's emotions that we can crawl above that. It's not going to come from trying to answer practical problems with political answers and trying to like drum up, you know, people to be angry and out in the streets. It's going to come from objectively looking at truth, um, dealing with where we are, the unique quirky, cool collection of, we even have a different set of law we call our counties, parishes, you know, within the context of the uniqueness of Louisiana to divide, to to devise situations or to devise policy rather, um, where we lift Louisiana up to the next level. We can do it. We just can't do it the way we're trying to do it right now. Well, Julie, you are a fighter and a thought leader. I only wish that our state had more people like you running for elected office. Good luck with your Louisiana Secretary of State race. If you enjoyed our podcast today, please write us a review on Apple iTunes. Your review helps others find our podcasts. Before we end, we want to thank Brent Joseph and his team for their amazing sound and production work on our podcast. From our Living Lympho podcast, I'm Chad Landry signing off. Thanks and have a great weekend.